0: Welcome to episode 37. Hey, that's my lucky number. Only number 37 would be my lucky number. Pretty random number, but there you go. Uh, So today we're talking about the ketogenic diet. What exactly is it? It's the internet's latest diet fad and needs a bit of tidy up, really, on the facts versus the fictions that's out there. If you've tried it or you're thinking of trying it or you use keto for weight loss or disease management, then you'll want to stay with me for the next 30 minutes because we'll decide whether it's hype or hope. Let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Good to have you here again whilst we chat about the keto diet and exactly what it is and what it is not. It's been buzzing around the internet for a couple of years now, and there are entire YouTube channels, Instagram pages, weight loss pages, courses, programs, solely dedicated to the keto diet, and there are also a ton of opinions and incorrect communications from random people that had success with it. Essentially, keto influencers, if you like. They have no scientific basis for their knowledge. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not shaming anyone for sharing their anecdotal experience, I think that anecdotes and positive speech about natural health movements are extremely powerful. But also, these days with social media, your own personal experience quickly goes from that to health coach or expert status, and that seamless transition really pisses me off because it breeds a culture that perpetuates pseudoscience and old wives' tales, and the real truth is actually sitting right there in the library. It's just that these people didn't come across that information on their path or the understanding that they are not the same as every other person that might receive their message. Okay, so I want to clear some of that up. In the interest of getting a clear answer about keto, though, let's start with a basic understanding of biology and metabolism. So generally speaking, the body runs primarily on glucose. Why is that? Because most diets are very high in sugar and carbs. They're super high in glucose. So it runs on glucose because we consume a ton of glucose. Makes basic sense, right? The body also uses what are called ketone bodies as an energy source. Ketones essentially come from the metabolizing of fat, right? The thing to understand is that it takes more energy to burn fat than it does glucose, which is why our fat accumulates as we consume glucose in abundant amounts. And also the sugar and carbs that we eat get put into our fat cells as well. So it gets locked up in those fat cells. And it is fairly logical to understand Why would the metabolic process preferentially metabolise fat, which costs more than glucose to metabolise? It's like spending $100,000 for a car that goes from A to B really fast, instead of spending $20,000 on a slower car that also goes from A to B. If the goal is only ever to go from A to B and speed does not matter, then of course you're going to go with the cheaper option. And in the context of the body's goal, right? The body's goal is to go from A to B in the cheapest way possible, and speed isn't the number one priority. The body automatically saves that eighty grand by spending less energy processing glucose and not processing the ketone bodies as the primary fuel source. When we utilize the ketones, when we utilize the keto diet, though, the aim is to shift the body into a fat-burning state, to trick the body into spending that higher price, the $100,000, because the speed and efficiency of spending more energy or by spending more energy or resources Has a bigger payoff, meaning that we shift the body from preferentially burning glucose as the primary energy source across to burning ketones as the fuel source. The idea in a nutshell is that the body converts to burning dietary fat as the primary fuel source so that when we are not eating food, our body will simply continue on burning our stubborn body fat. Whereas if you're in a sugar burning state, or you're in glycolysis, the body will not shift into that fat-burning state because it takes a bit of effort to get there. So what the brain does, or rather via the gut-brain connection, our hunger hormones send us off to find more calorific glucose foods so that it avoids the discomfort of having to pay that higher price to burn the locked-up, secured fat stores. Does that make sense? The discomfort I'm referring to, and the reason that it costs more and that it takes a bit of a push to get there, is often referred to as the keto flu. You've got to go through the keto flu to get into ketosis. Not everyone does, a lot of people do, though. And the keto flu is essentially a withdrawal phase from carbs because our body is, you know, in quotation marks, addicted to carbs and sugar. And a lot of the people that go on this diet are actually addicted to toxic carbs and sugars, they're not addicted to potatoes. And broccoli, like, you know, the walls of broccoli and uh, uh, carbs. Carbs are in all our vegetables. They're usually addicted to the really toxic ones. So you go through this withdrawal phase from these toxic sugars and carbs. So that's the keto flu. And it usually also creates, you know, a few different deficiencies. And the problems cop up from from that experience of massively downscaling cellular glucose metabolism and massively upscaling ketone production and usage something that is likely a first time for your body if you jump it into the keto diet, right? And this keto flu can essentially come across as a bunch of different things like drowsiness, dizziness, headaches, runny nose, nausea, irritability, which is super common from sugar addicts that are having withdrawals or any addict with any kind of indra- withdrawal, right? But the good news is that that phase passes, right? It passes. Now, I just want to bust a common myth. I love busting myths. I'm actually thinking about putting on my YouTube channel, Maddie's Marketing Myths, right? Something like that, because I love doing this because there's so much bullshit out there. There really is. And a lot of people, the myth is that essentially it's like a switch, right? The myth about the switching of fuel burning states. The idea that is put out there into the world by these influencers and people that have no idea is that it's essentially you flick a switch. At some point, The clouds open up and the angels sing and it's beautiful and you're accepted into the group of fat burners and you leave behind all the glucose-burning plebs. No. No, that is not what happens at all. (laughs) But I've heard so many people talk about it like that. You see, we're always burning a ratio of fat to glucose, right? We're always burning this ratio. It's just most of the time we're always burning burning both in different metabolic processes. It is just that the ratio most of the time is heavily skewed towards glucose. And as you begin to reduce and eliminate sugar and carbs from your diet, the ratio then begins slowly to move towards being in favor of fat, right? It starts to move, but it doesn't go to zero. That's kind of the idea of intermittent fasting too, right? The deeper you get into your fasting window each day, the more time you spend burning up your glycogen stores and then start to move the needle into burning more body fat. Of course though, once you break the fast with that what is normally a fairly carb heavy meal, you're back to square one. But each day dabbling your feet in a little bit each day of with a solid 16 to 20 hour fast can be really effective if you just, you know, kind of just enter into that fat burning stage a little bit each day, which is better than most people ever do. And why 16 to 20 hours? Well, I've got fasting podcasts on that. And why 16 to 20 hours? Because you need to burn all those glycogen stores. You need the time to burn those glycogen stores, right, before you start really knocking on the door of, of burning those fat stores. So these 16 to 20-hour fasts can actually be a really effective weight loss strategy and one that I actually use quite frequently with my clients as it seems to be far more sustainable and less restrictive than the keto diet. And you don't have to spend time shifting into a ketogenic state, although many will say that it is super beneficial, and for a lot of people, it probably is. Speaking of, it can actually take a bit of time to become ketogenic, right? You don't just start eating avocado and steak and you're all of a sudden in ketosis. I'm talking for some people that it takes a couple of weeks to fully make the shift into having their primary fuel source as fat because once we've really reduced the dietary glucose, the body then utilizes the carbohydrate stores, the glycogen that we've talked about that you've got already stored in your body or a rainy day. This is that rainy day in this instance. And different people have a different volume of storage, of course. Generally, though, the entry into being ketogenic or in ketosis is somewhere in the gap of three to 10 days. This is, of course, assuming people stay below their net carb amount and are very 100% committed to the diet. Any deviation will completely mess with the time that it'll take to get into ketosis. <laughs> And how many carbs should you have? What is that net carb amount? Well, the dietary breakdown for most ketogenic diets, and they're different from practitioner to practitioner, and they're also different from human body to human body as to how what will work for you and how it works for you. But generally, these are the guidelines. It's about seventy-five to eighty percent of your diet is fat, and all your meals are fat. Fifteen to twenty-five percent protein. Again, different for different people, and. 2% 2 to 10% carbs, as low as 2 okay? And when it's as low as 2 that's usually edging on the medical purposes, for medical purposes. But, you know, anyone can still do that. Most commonly, though, the number that is looked at is 5% of carbs of, of your meal and diet. Now, I know what you're thinking, believe it or not. 80% of calories from fat? Won't I just get fat? But if you haven't been living under a rock, you'll know that fat doesn't make you fat. It really is an annoying aspect of our vernacular that we have so many words that have double and triple meanings, and I didn't realize how bad English was with this until I became fluent in Spanish a few years ago. But most languages actually have a different word for dietary fat and body fat because they are very different things. And I think that there's a deep-seated problem in our psychology that perpetuates a bad relationship with fat simply because the words are identical in English. And of course, it is this exact thing that marketing companies have exploited for decades. Anyway, if you want to learn more about which fat does, in fact, make you fat, (laughs) I actually have an episode discussing exactly that. Um, It was episode 11. Check out episode 11, talking about that. Anyway, now, thinking about this from an evolutionary genetics standpoint, which is how I like to do most things. and. I consider to be one of the most important lenses to look through when it comes to diet and nutrition. So all cultures on the planet would have been going in and out of ketogenic states at different times of the year, right? Because one, food wasn't always available. So there would have regularly been water fasting simply due to the lack of consistent food availability. And how does our body survive when there's only water? It burns the body fat that we have on our body, right? And I should also chuck in here that you don't need to be overweight to have body fat. You know, the average person that, you know, has an average body, say 70 kilos, they're tall, skinny, they they have like 10 to 15 kilos of fat on their body, right? It's, there's plenty of fat to go around. You don't need to be carrying loads of additional weight. Anyway, so they were often in states where their body would burn fat because there was no food around. Point two, there would have been periods where they were only eating carnivorously, right? So imagine you're in a situation, you've got a small tribe, and you've just gone out for a big hunt, right? You've just relocated, you've just done a big hunt, or you hunted something while you were relocating. And for the next few days, everyone's just eating the, you know, what you killed on the hunt. They're just eating the meat. Because the meat's going to go off, right? So we've got to eat it before we move. So being in a carnivorous state for a few days or weeks means very likely that you're going to be in a ketogenic state due to the fact you're taking in fat and protein. Virtually no carbs, right? So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. all of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it, skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. And number three, they were often in states where their body would burn fat because there was no food around. Point two, there would have been periods where they were only eating carnivorously, right? So imagine you're in a situation, you've got a small tribe, and you've just gone out for a big hunt, right? You've just relocated, you've just done a big hunt, or you hunted something while you were relocating, and for the next few days, everyone's just eating the, you know, what you killed on the hunt. They're just eating the meat because the meat's going to go off, right? So we've got to eat it before we move. So being in a carnivorous state for a few days or weeks means very likely that you're going to be in a ketogenic state due to the fact you're taking in fat and protein. Virtually no carbs, right? And number three, there would have been periods where fat sources were the only thing in abundance, right? So this is why we have more than just glucose as a fuel source option, because Supply vary between the two different types of major fuel sources that we are able to metabolize, and if we were unable to to do both, or we couldn't obtain our energy from more than just this single source, we likely would have died out. Right? Lucky we didn't, eh? (laughs) So I think looking at it from an evolutionary standpoint, it makes you know massive sense as to why we're able to burn fat as fuel and how it does serve an important function in the modern day dieting approaches, since most people go their entire lives never being a quote-unquote, fat burner, right? Now, there is a real problem in the keto community of bragging about how good life is living the bacon and cheese dream because, you know, they're high in fat and protein and no carbs, right? People bang on about this all the time. Remember, if you do the diet incorrectly, you're going to stay fat and you'll likely get fatter after you've done the diet. It happens on so many fad diets and this is no different to any other fad diet. Why? Because it's an extreme radical change for a period of time. Right, so when people return to their normal life, guess what? The same shit that they lived in their normal life before returns. Um, anyway, a keto diet normally removes the likes of bread, grains, which I, you know, thinks not a bad thing anyway, irrelevant of the diet you're on. Uh, rice, cereal, chips, legumes, a lot of fruits, you know, there's a lot of sugar in fruits and and some vegetables as well, like potatoes. You know, potatoes are plenty of carbs, complex carbs, but they're carbs. Um what do we take in on a keto diet? So the most of the 80% is sort of focused around avocado, coconut, meat, including bacon, because bacon often obviously pork has a lot of fat. So a lot of people eat tons of bacon. Uh, cheese. A lot of people love cheese. I'm not a cheese person, but a lot of people love cheese. So, you know, cheese on bacon every day. No wonder people are losing their minds over the keto diet. Um, You know, fish, oils, butter, eggs, nuts, seeds. These are the types of things that are accepted on most keto diets. But there's some obvious stuff here, I think, that people you know, choose to ignore or don't really consider. And, of course, if you eat bacon and cheese fried in oil, there's going to be some serious health consequences if that's how you're living long-term, especially if those two things are not organic, right? Don't forget all the steroids, hormones, growth enhancers, antibacterial agents, antiviral vaccines that are pumped into the animals that we eat. And particularly with dairy, the estrogenic effects that come from these these foods, because they're not organic and they're not farmed correctly, and they're pumped full of all of these different additives, and the excess estrogen that is often in things like milk and other dairy products, having them in abundance, yeah, it's it's not good, obviously. Obviously, it's not good. So whilst it might help you burn your body fat, you're still pumping toxins into your body. So, you know, it's about prioritizing the function of your biological being and figuring out the best path to achieve the result that you want at the end. And now you know how I feel about conventional dairy and meat. It really should be grass-fed, pasture-raised, if you're doing dairy at all, that is. It must be. And the meat, ideally, in an ideal perfect world, it should be naturally hunted, right? And only then would the cheese and bacon life be bordering on healthy. But still, too much of the same thing over and over is not good. And cheese is still a heavily processed item. And generally, with heavily processed items, what have you got? Nutrient deficiencies all over town with such a restrictive diet, right? This list I just mentioned um, above obviously kind of indicates that it would be quite difficult to achieve long-term consistent ketosis for vegans and vegos. Not impossible, But also not easy given most of the things on the list that are satiating are going to be meat and protein heavy products. So it might be more difficult with vegans and vegos. I would imagine that it is quite difficult to be honest because a vegan or veggio diet is often quite heavy in carbs and not bread, but like all vegetables and fruits have carbs in them. Okay, you don't need to be unhealthy to have a high carb diet. So the question is why has the keto diet become so popular all of a sudden? Well, Because the internet and influencers and Kim Kardashian, the truth is that the ketogenic diet has actually been around for over 100 years. It's just that we live in this Instagram reality now. So we've got this, you know, false uh, perception going on that it's far, far greater and more influential than any diet ever. But it's actually pretty similar in regards to results. But keto has been around for over 100 years and it's been used since the 1920s in a medical context. So it's been used to manage epileptic seizures since the 20s because fat's a major part of the nervous system and the brain uses fat for fuel very effectively, which is why mental clarity is one of the benefits of being deep into ketosis. And you've probably heard me on Instagram talk about when I'm three or four or five days into a water fast, how much my mental clarity is through the roof and the level of focus that I have is insane. That's for this reason here, right? Because being deep into ketosis facilitates mental clarity because the brain does well using ketones. It's also been found to be super useful in diabetes, given that carbs and sugars are the thing that causes insulin spikes and perpetuate insulin problems. When the diet is mostly fat, that means there are less carbs, meaning the insulin spikes are fewer and less severe. So that makes pretty basic sense. And I would suggest looking into Dr. Jason Fung, who I've mentioned before, He wrote The Obesity Code. He wrote The Diabetes Code. He wrote The Ultimate Guide to Fasting. Um, Yeah, he talks a lot on non-conventional treatment for diabetes because his idea is that why would you give a diabetic that has insulin problems more insulin? Anyway, check him out. He's amazing. Um, So it's also been investigated as an adjunct to cancer therapy. The rationale is based on some of the primary differences in glucose metabolism between cancer cells and normal cells, right? So cancer cells require a much greater glucose input to satiate their energy requirements. So removing the glucose and replacing it with fat seems to make basic sense because if cancer cells are so dangerously proliferative and they consume glucose at a far greater rate, then remove the glucose, right? Seems to make basic sense. I recommend for anybody curious or suffering from cancer, check out the book called Cancer as a Metabolic Disease by Thomas Seafried, who is a professor that was highly discredited for publishing this book, given it really goes against the conventional sort of medical pharmaceutical narrative of cancer, which probably means it's actually a really useful strategy. <laughs> anyway, check out that book if you're interested in looking into that kind of stuff. We'll do an episode on that another time. Maybe I'll even try and get... Tom Seyfried on. Uh, He's an amazing human. And I guess the point is here that I'm trying to make is that the keto diet has been around medically for quite some time and its most recognizable form is as the Atkins diet. A lot of people sort of know it as the Atkins diet because the Atkins diet has been around since the 60s um, and it's sort of resurfaced in the last few years with the reemergence of the keto diet or the popularity of the keto diet. Um, But the keto diet now is a slightly slightly revised version of the Atkins diet, right? Because we know now that excess protein is metabolized into different forms of sugar in the body. And therefore, the modern day metric is for moderate protein intake, whereas the uh, Atkins diet was low carb, as much protein and as much fat as you want. So the revised version is just a mediation or limit on the amount of protein that you can put in on a keto diet, which is makes it more ketogenic. So. I've got some truth for you. Despite how amazing your Instagram feed makes keto sound, it shows no significant difference compared to other dietary interventions in being better or worse than any other diet for weight loss. Even though you feel like everyone is doing keto, what changed was that we're all addicted to our phones, Instagram and Kim Kardashian, and so it sort of provides us this false positive idea about the actual data. Just because everyone is talking about it does not mean that a disproportionate number of people are getting positive results. It's the same as any other diet. You're probably wondering exactly why is keto actually producing the same results as every other diet when everybody says it's so bloody good. Well, let me tell you why. And it's some pretty unglamorous truth, to be honest. It's very similar to the rest of the diets. It's not sustainable. It's highly restrictive. It doesn't address the underlying cause of weight gain, which is almost always emotionally related, trauma related, or severe lack of education related or the fact that they now now have become a sugar and carb addict as a result of those things, keto doesn't address any of those things. And with keto as well, all you need is one super carb-heavy meal by accident or a cheat meal, and you're thrown out of ketosis. You've got to start again, right? Um, it's not ideal. And that component of it makes it more restrictive than most diets that are actually out there, than most fad diets. Now, obviously, one carb-heavy meal is not going to throw everybody out of ketosis. And as I said, it's always a ratio, but you're sending the ratio heavily in the direction that you don't want in the context of keto when you have a carb-heavy cheat meal. All right, that is my ketogenic chat. So I hope I've cleared it up for you. Basically, it's high fat, moderate protein, very low carb. It's been around for a long time it can be very very effective when used properly however it's not very sustainable in my opinion i hope this episode has brought you some level of clarity on the keto diet and that the take home message really is that it's okay to go on any diet when appropriate but if it's not a move to sustainable long term health you'll end up worse in a worse state than when you started the health kick right the situation should be the right diet for the right person at the right time that deals with the mindset psychology and causation of weight gain. That is the best bet. And if that is keto for you, then awesome. But don't be discouraged if keto doesn't work because the sustainable, healthy lifestyle for you is waiting for you to find it best found slowly and gradually as you move towards making your baseline as healthy as possible. That's it. All right? Remember, it's about sustainability, not random fads where you end up worse than you started. Okay remember, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot, share it with a friend, uh, put it up as your Instagram story on the old interwebs or on any platform that you use. Tag me at Maddie Lansdowne or my guests for whichever episode you're listening to. And don't forget, we've got the competition. It's going to be announced on episode 43, one free one-on-one consultation with me talking nutrition and lifestyle optimization for you. So be sure to enter that. Thanks so much and I hope to chat with you soon. Probably next Wednesday. See ya. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode.